morning with the time change and with spring break, I was wondering how many people would show up at 10.30. And uh, um, I'm glad to see you all. I was amazed when I came this morning. About 45 years ago, I was involved in a, in a church called Iowa City Bible Fellowship. And about five people from those days are here this morning. And so it's like old home. And, and, and that church was just like this, setting up the chairs, taking them down every Sunday. It was like a family. And so it's great to, to see them here. It's great encouragement to me. So Mark 13, this is the longest discourse that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Mark. It's called the Olivet Discourse. I always used to wonder, what, what does Olivet mean? But I guess it's, it, what it means is he was sitting on the Mount of Olives when he gave this. And um, it's also, according to some of the commentaries, the, the most difficult passage in the Gospel of Mark. So I, I don't see Doug here, but Doug, oh, there he is. Thank you for giving this passage to me. <laughs> and one of my heroes is, is ser sermons is John MacArthur. He spent five hours on this chapter. I've gotten 30 minutes. Okay, so we're just going to hit the high points of this. Okay, so... So Mark chapter 13, I'm going to do the Reader's Digest condensed version of Mark 13. So we'll read a few passages, skip a few, read a few more, okay? So I hope you can follow me. So we're going to start in verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, two pairs of brothers, by the way, asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. And at the end of verse 8, there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pangs. But, on your guard, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And then verse 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as, not been, as, 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 as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And then verse 23. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And then in verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. 
By the way, does anyone need a Bible? I forgot to ask before I started reading. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and, and we can get one to you. Okay, don't see anyone. Okay, alrighty. Let's pray. Father, uh, my words are, are feeble, but yours are strong. We, fa- we pray, Father. We cry for, the underst- for understanding your truth. Father, there's treasure. There's treasure here in these verses. Help us to mine it so that we do better at loving you, respecting you, knowing you, and obeying you. Teach us and change us by your power and grace. Amen. I stopped my my stopwatch here. Every time I preach, I try to come up with a new way to, to, to watch my time. And so this is the latest version already. Okay, so if you've lived in Iowa for very long, you recognize that occasionally we have tornadoes. Okay. But even more than tornadoes, we, all, we have false tornado warnings, don't we? Yeah. We've got a torrent of false tornado warnings. And, and this, these, these false warnings lead to two common but opposite and equally harmful responses to these false warnings. One is to believe that all the warnings are false. So one is not prepared for the danger of an actual tornado. The other extreme is to believe that every warning signal and every, every rain cloud in the sky is a portent of impending doom. These same opposite reactions characterize the responses that many people have to the return of Christ. On the one hand, because it's been such a long time, and because through the years and all the books that have written, there's all the false warnings of his coming have taken place, it's easy to, 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 many people think that it's not going to happen, or the Bible's wrong, or that we can't understand what it says, but whatever, we don't have to worry about it. The other extreme is to get so caught up w- with an endless stream of interpretations about what the signs mean that all, the, the focus is on What part does this nation play? What part does Russia play? What part does China play? What part does Iraq play? Or who's the Antichrist? In the 1600s, it was, is the Pope the Antichrist? Reformers thought. Uh, Later in World War II, is Hitler the Antichrist? Today, I've read some things. is, Is this 12th Imam, the Mahdi of Islam, is that going to be the Antichrist? And it goes on and on but they end up not being true. And, and the result is that we hear these things and we preach these things, and the result is that Jesus is discredited. The scriptures are discredited. So we have to be really careful as we look, as we read these passages, 
Now, neither of these, these extremes are what God intended. What he intended was that we learn some practical things about how to live in light of Jesus' return, which could happen soon. So that's basically, basically if, you, if you read the book of Revelation, which kind of fits right in, in, in Matthew, in, in Mark 13, the point of Revelation is, is, that, is that hang in there, endure, because Jesus is going to come back as king and judge and set everything right. And that's basically what, what Mark writes here and what Jesus teaches here in Mark 13. Endure, hang in there, because Jesus is, com- is, he, Jesus is coming back as king and judge. And that's what our focus should be. How do we endure? How do we live through these times? Not so much on what exactly is this particular sign. There are signs, and they need to be thought about. But the but the, the key idea is, how do we live in light of that? So let me set the context a little bit more. First of all, the prophetic context. So this is kind of, this chapter and revelation are kinds of a, mind, a minefield of different interpretations. So it's good to remember Rupertus Meldenius. Anybody remember him? Okay. Rupert Meldenius, he was Peter Medellin, a Lutheran theologian. He wrote this, in essentials, unity. In doubtful things or non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. So that's something great to remember as we deal with with this issue of of the Lord's return. Another thought is this. As we think about essentials, the sudden, personal, bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of those essentials. It's a non-negotiable. It's an essential of our Christian faith. It's mentioned over and over again, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Without the second coming of Jesus, the Christian faith and our Christian life, there's no, there's no hope for the end if he's not returning. One really cannot really live the Christian life unless one believes it, thinks about it, and lets it shape and form their life. The reality that he really is coming back and it could be so. It's really important. So essential, the Lord Jesus is coming back. But the details, some of the, are debatable. We can differ on, on those things. So, so when we think about the scriptures in, in, in Mark 13, God's word is infallibly true. Everybody believe that? His word is infallibly true. The problem for us today is that there are no infallible human interpreters of that word, and especially a chapter like this. So, so no interpretation of this passage is absolutely certain and without weaknesses or strengths. So I'm taking a very fallible stab at a complicated text. We need to recognize that this passage is interpreted differently by very godly people. For some, for instance, some believe that most of the events in Mark 12 and in Revelation already occurred way back in 70 AD. Others believe that these events are still future. 
godly people on both sides of that fence. So we have to remember that, and we need to be humble with our conclusions and be open to change and to listening again and again to the Word of God to teach us. So while the details are interesting, the message is practical. And that's what I want to focus on. How to live in the conditions prevalent before the Lord returns. So we're not going to cover the details. We're not going to deal, deal much with the signs at all. We're going to, what we're going to do is look at his commands. How do you want them to live in those times? So the scriptural context is this. Through his ministry, Jesus has been teaching who he is and he's been preparing his, his disciples for his departure and the new form that the kingdom is going to take. But he's now in the last week of his life, life on earth, uh, before his death. He's going to die on the cross in perhaps two days. Yet even that close to the end, he's still teaching and loving his disciples to prepare them for his departure. Last week, Doug brought up the issue of uh, where our ultimate allegiance is. What Jesus is going to hear now is describe what that ultimate allegiance looks like. So the setting is this. They see the beautiful temple. And it was an amazing building. Awesome. It was a wonder of the ancient world. And it was a center of the disciples' life. But Jesus says, it's going to be destroyed utterly. And that happened in 70 AD when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And they tore the stones apart because they wanted to get at the gold that had melted down in between the stones. Literally true. It's exactly what Jesus said. Utterly destroyed. Not one stone left on another. So Peter, James, Andrew, and John come and ask him, when? When's that going to happen? This wasn't in our program. And what will be the signs that indicate that these kind of things are going to happen? And so Jesus starts to teach. And his answer is, in his reply, he skillfully weaves together into a unified discourse a prophetic scene that involves two perspectives. A near event, that's the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and the far event, his second coming, the coming of the Son of Man in power and glory. The former, the local event, the destruction of the temple, was a forerunner or a shadow of the latter universal event. So what does allegiance look like to Jesus? Uh, what does allegiance to Jesus look like? Let me put it that way. How should we live in light of the Lord's return? Well, basically, it's the idea of be ready. And there's, uh, be ready in four ways. Be ready to wrestle with deception. Be ready to withstand persecution. Be ready to witness judgment. And be ready to welcome the Lord. 
So first of all, be ready, or be ready to wrestle with deception. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. This is in verse 5. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place. The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. So what does he say here? He says, don't be led astray. Why? Does he say that? Because there's going to be false messiahs who come. True in his day, true in our day. In his day, there were other people claiming to be the Messiah. In our day, we have the same thing. There are people claiming to be the Messiah. But also we have the cults who are presenting a different view of the Messiah. And then our culture is presenting a different view of Jesus, just a man. He was wrong in talking about coming back. We can learn some good things, but he's not God. False Messiah. But besides false messiahs, there's going to be the, the, the ease of misinterpreting comedy events and disasters as the ultimate sign for the second coming. Many authors have pointed out future people and nations and events as the contemporary fulfillment of biblical prophecies about the Lord's return. And then the result is they turn out to be false. Again, what are the key countries? Who is the Antichrist? How many earthquakes do we need before we know we're in the end days? Things like that. And the result, again, is that many Christians become disenchanted. And, the, and again, the scriptures are ridiculed. Jesus is ridiculed. It's considered false. So we need to be very careful as we interpret these things, especially stay away from dates, okay? Stay away from dates. So that's the first one. Be, 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 be ready to wrestle with deception because it's going to be around. Secondly, be ready to withstand persecution. Be on your guard, he says. Just one second here. I need a drink. Drink of water, that is. Okay. All righty. So be ready to withstand persecution. He says, be on your guard. He says, be on your guard. This is verse 9. For they will deliver you over to consuls, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will, be, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before me. And then in verse 12, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And he will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So he says, be on your guard. Why? Persecution. In the first century, it was common. Think of the early martyrs, Stephen, James, and basically all the apostles. Uh, it was common in the early church. Listen to what Peter says. Now, it's interesting, as I was preparing, I, I, I've come to understand that perhaps Peter is behind Mark's gospel. Mark is writing, in one sense, Peter's memoirs. So it might be helpful, if that's true, it might be helpful to read Peter's epistles along with Mark's gospel. So Peter says this in, 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 in um, let's see. Yeah, okay. Peter says this in chapter 4, 1 Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised 
at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In that little passage, you know, he talks about persecution and suffering, and also the Lord's return. It was, it was part of the life of the Christian in the first century. And in, in many places in the world today, it's true today, isn't it? I read somewhere that since the time of Christ, it's, it's, it's estimated that 70 million Christians have died for their faith. That's an incomprehensible number. I'm not quite sure how they got it, but it, whether that's exactly true or not, it's a huge number through the centuries. And in the 20th century has been the bloodiest century so far. One person wrote, it is estimated that as many as 160,000 Christians die for their faith every year. Christians die for their faith every day. They're sold into slavery and buried alive in Sudan. They're raped and executed in, in Central America and in the Balkans. They're burned alive, beaten and stoned in India, Indonesia, and East Timor. They're imprisoned, abandoned, or killed by their families in the Middle East. They're beaten and jailed in China and in North Korea. The persecution of the Christian exists in every nation on the, on the planet every day of the year. You know, by contrast, our persecution here seems pretty light, doesn't it? But it is there. Some people experience it more than others. So Paul, uh, Mark says, be ready for persecution. So how do we do that? How do we endure through suffering and persecution? Jesus said, you will be hated by all for my namesake, but, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. How do we endure in times of persecution? Again, going to 1 Peter, Peter writes this, and what he's saying is we, to endure in persecution, we need to recognize, we need to recognize our, the inheritance that's waiting for us and the glory that endurance gives to Jesus. Peter writes this, 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, not a dead hope, a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Much better than our bank account. So, so we have an inheritance to look forward to, but then he goes on, and in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have, you've been grieved by various trials. Here we go again. So that the testing, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love that. Raise hand. Thank you. So it's going to bring glory to him and inheritance for us. Another thing, how do we, how do we endure? Well, we need to recognize how faithful God is to us. Again, in 1 Peter, Peter writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, let them entrust their souls to a faithful God, a faithful creator while doing good. 
we sang about Yahweh, the faithful one. He's our creator. We can entrust our souls to him, our lives to him. The son, the one who died for us and rose again, who's coming back, he's faithful. The Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us, he's faithful. How to endure? Recognize what endurance leads to. How to endure? Recognize the faithfulness of God in our life. And finally, recognize the importance of the church family as we go through hard times. Again, Peter writes this, 1 Peter chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. There's a book titled Killing Christians, Living the Faith When It's Not Safe to Believe. And the author writes about an episode there that I think gives a great picture of the body of Christ that we help each other. This is a story about some, some, some pastors, some church leaders, and it goes like this. These are underground church leaders who are committed to reach Muslims for Christ until they're martyred. And so what they did is, they, to seal their commitment, they gathered money to buy a graveyard in which to bury each other. One of the leaders said, as of, as of this writing, none of us have died yet. But we rejoice by greeting each other with the words, the graveyard's still empty. We know, we know, we all know it will not stay empty. But meanwhile, we're grateful. And we worry about things, about things like which deodorant to wear. Be ready. Be ready to withstand persecution. Number three, be ready to witness judgment. The Lord went on, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where you ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For in those, and then verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. It's kind of a confusion there. In the verse before, in the verses before, he, he said, stand, endure. Now, in verse 14, he says, flee, run away. How do you put those two things together? There is, a, there is a time to endure trouble. But Jesus also talks about a time that's coming that's, that the suffering is so great, the tribulation is so much, that there is a time to flee. So what does he say? He says, when you see the abomination of desolation... Run. I wish we had time to talk about what that might be, but I don't have time. Okay. Why run? Because there's a horrible suffering to follow. And false messiahs and teachers are going to come again to lead this lineage, lead astray many. So what did he mean? What does he mean by those things? Well, some interpret this, this desecration of the temple and the suffering to follow as referring only to the chaotic years preceding Jerusalem's fall 
in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And those things did happen. There was, something did happen that could fit the abomination of desolation in the temple. And the suffering was great. It got to the famine was so bad that women were forced to eat their dead children. That's how bad it got. Now, others relate this, these, this sign to the future tribulation, the great tribulation that Revelation talks so much about. But perhaps it's related to both. Again, we got the near fulfillment in Jerusalem and in the temple, and then we got the, the far fulfillment before Christ's return. And perhaps the point is that just as literal and just as, as, as true as that first uh, abomination and destruction and suffering took place, so the second is going to be happening too. So be ready for suffering. And then finally, be, be ready to welcome the Lord. Again, Jesus says, in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light and the stars will be falling from the heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they, that's everyone, will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Again, just very briefly, what does he say here? He will return. And it's going to be obvious to everyone. You don't have to be listening to a false prophet who says, I'm he. You will see it. It's obvious when I return. But then he gives the parable of the fig tree, you know. This one, the fig tree takes its lesson. He says, you know, when you see the fig tree, uh, it starts to, to green up, it gets leaves. You know that summer's coming, just like here in the spring when you see the oak trees get their leaves. You know, it's not, it's without a doubt, summer's on the way, and soon. So all he says is, when you see, that, see these things take place, know that these things are going to happen. The last thing he says in, in that parable is, what I say to you, excuse me, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. In other words, he's saying, what I'm telling you to you is going to happen. It's going to happen. And then he finishes up, with that parable of the, of the steward or, or, or the, the servants in the master's home. But I'm just, what I just want to say, I'm just going to read the commands that he says there, what he says to them, the verbs. He says, be on guard, keep awake. Therefore, stay awake. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. His point is all that is that we will not know exactly when it's going to happen, when Jesus will return. But we need to stay awake. We need to stay alert. I was talking to Dave Foster. Dave Foster is preaching the same passage at the other campus. And, I, and he, he said this, which is, I'm just going to, to describe this part here. He says, we have an appointment with the Lord Jesus Christ, but we just don't know when that appointment is. The apostles believed that this would happen before they died. The early church believed that this, that this was imminent. No one foresaw the 2,000-plus-year gap between Jesus leaving and him coming back. But in the Old Testament, no one saw the gap between what the prophets said about the first coming and the, and, and the, and the Lord's coming. So the moral of the story this is be prepared, be alert, stay awake as he's coming. But I don't know about you, but staying awake is hard. 
Anybody else have a problem with that? Uh, you know, I, I don't have a problem here because I'm speaking. But I know what it's like to be listening to a sermon. You know, it's, it's hard to stay awake through a sermon, let alone wait, be alert for the Lord's return over 2,000 years. So how, how, what can we do to stay alert? Well, probably one of the simplest things we can do is remind ourselves and remind each other that it's really going to happen. And it could be tonight. It could be tomorrow that the Lord descends in the clouds and calls us up to be with him. Second thing we can do is we can, we can focus our energies while we wait on serving him. Now, uh, when, my, when, my, when my future son-in-laws asked me permission to date my daughters, there's one of them back there, okay? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I didn't say, well, I, I didn't say no, but I gave them a list of rules, okay? And it, it was kind of a joke, but there was, there was a point to it, but rule number six was this, okay? This is, this is dad's dating rules for prospective suitors of my daughters, okay? Rule number six, as you stand by my front door waiting for my daughter to appear and more than an hour goes by, do not sigh and fidget. If you want to be on time for the movie, you should not be dating my daughter. <laughs> my daughter is putting on her makeup, a process that can take longer than painting the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, this is not original with me. I found this online, okay? So but instead of just standing there doing nothing, why don't you do something useful like change the oil in my car? Okay? And the point is this. You know, the idea is while we're waiting, do something for the Lord. Serve him. Continue to serve him. Peter said it more elegantly this way. He said, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people are we to be? In, in lies of holiness and godliness. But the problem is, how can we be alert if we really don't yearn for the Lord's return? See, a problem we have here in, in, in the States, for many of us, life is really comfortable. So we don't have any, any great desire for the Lord to return. Okay. But most of the rest of the world is not that way. And for many people here in the States, it's not that way. Uh, Neil Platinga said this, the second coming of Jesus is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. If you're a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt or in the southern United States in the early 19th century, or if you're an Israelite exiled in Babylon or, in Kosovo, or Kosovar exiled in Albania, if you're a woman in the, in the, in the, in the culture where when your husband gets mad at you, he can lock you up in a closet or call up his buddies and threaten to have them rape you. Or if you're a Christian in sub-Saharan Africa today where AIDS has decimated whole populations, then you don't yawn when someone mentions the return of Jesus Christ. They long for it. So what can we do with that? We're living in our comfort. Well, if, one thing we can do is if we, if we passionately begin to see how wrong things are in our broken world, the wrongs that people are experiencing, then we will begin to long more for the Lord's return because it's only when he returns that justice will actually really be fulfilled and the world will be set right. But the converse of that is true also is that 
as, as, as the brokenness of the world drives us to long for his return, realizing his return can drive us to be working now to heal the brokenness in the world. Why? Well, a critical part of Jesus' return is to restore and, and, and the renewal of all creation. The end of death, disease, poverty, injustice, violence, and hunger. So those who come to yearn for the second coming will hate what God hates and long to see his restoration take place. And we'll be working on it now with him, but with the hope and understanding that it's going to be all taken care of someday. Just not now. But there's a tension. I'll close with this. There's a tension when we, that we, we feel in relationship to Christ's second coming. It's this. So if there's no second coming of the judge and no judgment day, then there's no ultimate hope for the world. Because it's only then that the judge will set things right. But if there is a judgment day, what hope is there for me? What hope is there for you? Who can stand facing God's judgment? None of us can. Tim Keller, he gave a really neat way to picture what's the solution to that. He, says, he said this. The solution is the connection of two days of darkness in Mark. One in Mark 13 and one in Mark 15. In Mark 13, at the coming of the judge, we read, the sun will darken and the moon will not give us light. In Mark 15, we read, there was darkness over the whole world, over the whole land. When? When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there at the cross, the darkness looked like judgment day. Why? It was. It was judgment day come down on Jesus, on the cross. Jesus experienced the absence of his father. Why? Because he was paying the price for our sins. So that at the second coming, we could be restored. Killer ends with this. The gospel is the story of, of the great judge, of the universe being willing... Of, of the, uh, excuse me, the gospel is the story of the great judge of the universe being willing to be judged for us. That the great judge of the universe was willing to leave his throne and his judgment seat to stand as the judged, the condemned for us. In Revelation, when John looks at the throne, he sees a lamb instead of the judge. Why? Because our judge has taken our judgment for us. What does it mean to become a Christian? It means I can never withstand God's judgment. I can never pass on my own. But my judge was willing to take my judgment for me. And that's our hope. Because of the gospel, we can, we can be ready. We can be alert. We can be hopeful for the return of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to think wisely and accurately about, about your son's return. Enable us to be ready to wrestle with deception, withstand persecution, witness judgment, and welcome the Lord. Father, help us to be alert.
Help us to look forward to and long for your son's return, for the restoration that that means and the glory and honor that it brings to you. Amen.